The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, January 9th, the Pretty White Boy Edition. I'm Dan Coyce. I'm a writer at Slate. I'm the author of the book How to Be a Family. I'm the dad of Lyra, who's 14, and Harper, who's 12, and I live in Arlington, Virginia. Hi, I'm Jamila Lemieux, a writer, contributor to Slate's Care and Feeding Parenting column, and a communications consultant. I am mom to Naima, who is six, and we live in sunny Los Angeles, California, but I am coming to you live from a closet in Chicago, Illinois. And I'm Laura Tisdall, a book editor at Penguin Random House and parent to Mark, who is five, and Harriet, who is newly three, and we live in Brooklyn, New York. Welcome, Laura. We're glad to have you this week. Thanks. Today on the show, we've got a question from a parent whose daycare teachers treat her white child different from the other children. And we have a question from a mother wondering if it's okay to take the fall for her daughter. Plus, as always, triumphs and fails and recommendations. So we will start today with some triumphs and fails. Jamila, what do you have for us today? A triumph or a fail? I'm going to say I have both. The triumph is that I have a child who is so deeply committed to my success on this podcast that she puts me in situations where I have a devastating enough fail each week to be riveting (laughs) enough for people to want to tune in. So your triumph is that she gives you a chance to fail. She gives me chances to fail, yes. Let's Um, hear it. (laughs) So literally today, when I was on the way to come record, we're visiting Chicago for a week, which is where her dad and I are both from, so we're visiting family. I came to a co-working space to get some work done, record the podcast. And so she asked me to set something up on her iPad, of course, you know, as I'm pretty much on my way out the door. And so I'm like, okay. And it wasn't working. I was like, well, let me go to the website for the app. And I see that every tab, there's a ton of tabs open on Safari, and they have one word in common. Sex. My daughter. Burn. Googled sex because in her words i keep hearing this word and i wanted to know what it meant now this is someone who has no problem asking me what any number of things mean so whatever she'd heard around sex she either thought better of asking me she you know didn't think i would talk to her about it knew it was something adult and didn't want to ask me wanted to find out the old-fashioned way the porn gifts thought tumblr got rid of them but they still live on the internet somewhere and so my fail is not having uh adequate parent controls on my daughter's ipad in 2020 i am actually i'm a boomer i am like Parental controls were invented for my generation. Why didn't I do it? Why didn't I do it? I have no excuses. I have no excuses. And I had it <laughs> on the app so she could download, but somehow I didn't have it on the adult on the website content because I didn't think about her going on websites. I have a response to this fail. Okay. I just Googled sex. You don't really <laughs> get Tumblr porn gifts. Like you get the sex page on psychology today. And you get like <laughs> A, an interview with Peggy Orenstein. Well, like, maybe she Googled Tumblr sex gifts, but what I'm telling you I guess that's is true. that all of these tabs were pornographic. Everything, like she'd gone down a rabbit hole of some sort. Maybe it was what the sex She's look gone like. to like page seven of that Google images search. Or maybe yeah. that's just an accurate reflection 
Jamila, of what Google believes you are looking for. Jesus Christ. You Google sex. <laughs> well, then why was everybody white? <laughs> <laughs> Never uh, seen so much time, white porn in my life. It's one time we walked into the kitchen and uh, the instant we walked in, Harper immediately closed her computer. And we were like, hey, what's up, Harper? It's like, nothing. And then she just left the room. opened the computer and she had Googled, what do ladies' private parts look like? <laughs> Got to teach her about keywords. Honestly, That'll never the work. Sweetest thing. Yeah, it was bad SEO on my daughter's part. Um, you know what? This is a universal experience for every mm-hmm. child in America at this point, right, Jamila? I think that this yeah. is a very forgivable fail. Best to get it out of the way. Yeah. So I'm, I'm going to buy her one of those nice hippy-dippy sex books that all the parents in my neighborhood read. Um, I had a classmate who told us in great detail what sex was, not at school, but at like the cashier at the grocery store once. I'll never forget <laughs> that. That's how I learned where babies come from. So mm-hmm. we're ready. Good. Uh, Laura, what about you? Do you have a triumph or a fail this week? I have a smug triumph that became a fail, which I feel like is uh, one of my specialties in parenting. So my two kids have really entered the age of bickering, um, the age I remember distinctly as being the sort of overshadowing element of childhood, which is just bickering with your sibling about something you don't even really seem to care about except for their touching it. Um, And I can't tell you the number of times the last several months I've been pulled into refereeing an argument I didn't really want to be part of. My husband and I have been looking for ways out of this, and I guess it takes about six times of reading something before it sinks into my brain because anyone who has any use of the Internet or Facebook can tell you that the sort of lingo right now about dealing with this is that you should be a sports caster, not a referee. And what that basically means is describing for your kids the situation they find themselves in and then backing out of the room so that they can figure out how to do the dispute themselves. Because even the best parent mediator usually ends up seeming like they've taken somebody's side, leaving someone with hurt feelings or just like leaving in their own you know, personal fit of anger. We started doing this with our kids. We started really trying to take a beat. We started communicating as parents, my husband and I, more about how to do this. And it was really working. Um, We were seeing our kids talking to each other in much more respectful ways, getting out in front of arguments. And we were feeling like, you know, possibly Brooklyn's most Brooklyn parents um, and really patting ourselves on the back. And then, you know, my son started kindergarten this year and a few months into school, he came home and told us about some really unpleasant behavior he was experiencing. Um, He described it as a group of kids scolding him a lot. But when he gave us the exact things that they were saying. It sounded a lot more like bullying. And we um, were really surprised to hear that he had been trying to talk this out with them or trying to fight with them about it and not telling a teacher. The thing he's best known for is asking for help immediately before trying to do anything, like, say, put on a sock. Um, (laughs) But right away, he said, well, now I'm confused because you told me to solve my own disputes. And we were just like, oh, shit, we've we've really we taught that lesson too hard. And so not only have we entered the age of bickering, but I feel like we've now entered the age of nuanced, complicated, psychologically rigorous parenting. And I'd really enjoyed 
being on the other side when a lot of the answers were multiple choice and now we're in the sort of essay answer part of parenting. So we had to then try to have a complicated discussion with him about the different scenarios in which you should work it out and the scenarios in which you should ask for help. And I think we only confused him more. So so who knows what will become of him on the bus on the way to kindergarten? That is a tough fail. That's so interesting. Yeah. It's like in the long run, that skill is what you want him to. I mean, that is what you want him to be doing, even with situations this difficult. But at his current age, like not yet. No, no, yeah. That first but you said cuts so deep. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you've heard that before. <laughs> it, it, oh, I hear it all the time. But the first time, I mean, like a really pointed, like, I listened to what you asked me to do. And I did my best to follow your directions. And now you are telling me that somehow I have fallen short of your expectations by doing what you asked me to do. It is. Exactly. It's torture. As Jamila's child has now learned about sex, so has your child learned about the fallibility of parents. <laughs> again. Even, again. Still. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I have a uh, tentative triumph this week. I reserve the right to revoke this triumph later. But I think we found a church. So uh, we've been trying for quite a while to find a church to go to, um, even before the trip. But, you know, on the trip, I really liked our experience with the church we went to in Kansas. And then since we got back, I tried out a couple of different ones here in Arlington, and they never quite felt right. Like one, it was just clear that everyone in the church was just like Arlington society, and they didn't feel like our people. And then another church the music was really good, but then the sermon was all about like the prosperity gospel and it was like not working. But then right before Christmas, crazily, uh, someone I have never met before emailed me out of the blue and said, I read the book and I read the part where you said you're looking for a church and I think mm -hmm. you would like our church so you should come. Aww. And so we went and she was right. I liked it. It was an Episcopal church, like maybe 10 minutes away from us. It mm -hmm. seems extremely chill and very community-oriented. Like one extremely dumb thing they did that I loved was that, I, I mean, I've never been in a church so hokey as to do this, but they just literally called up all the adults and children who were having birthdays that week to the front Aww. of the church Aww. and were like, happy birthday. Uh, which that. why would you even do that at church? It makes no sense, but I loved it. But everyone was really nice. For every other spring, they do a big musical at this church starring all the kids. And so Harper has signed up to be in Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Oh, that's amazing. Um, and so I like it. We'll see. You know, it's possible that in the end, the sermons will be bad or we won't fit in like we think we did or whatever. But right now, tentatively, I'm chalking this up as a triumph, not only – of finding the church, but of like being open to the totally crazy idea of accepting a rando's invitation to their church and not worrying that it was a cult or something. That is a very big triumph, especially since you all have wanted to find a church home for so long. Can I confess something to you all? Sure. Yeah, this yes. is a safe space. No one's listening except for <laughs> no thousands listening. of listeners. <laughs> thousands. So I guess growing up, I didn't know why people went to church, which is the strangest thing. Like, <laughs> I knew, obviously, you all have to because we didn't go to church until we met you guys, not in the way that we do now. You know, so and I was very clear on how Christianity had been introduced to my ancestors. Um, I also was not raised in church. My parents, you know, I don't go to church. 
the neighborhood that I grew up in, there were a number of very diverse churches. I grew up in Hyde Park, Chicago. So um, this is where the Obamas were going to church. But most of the white people that I interacted with were Jewish and they were either active in, you know, synagogue or they were, you know, not. But I didn't know white people who went to church. And on TV, white people do not go to church unless it's on Fox News. Like that's, and I think that was the big thing. You know, like I was the weirdo because I didn't go to church and I wasn't a Christian. And so like when I meet white people in real life and they talk about church, to this day, I'm still like, wow. <laughs> and like, I know, I know that so much of my life is colored by white Christians. You know what I mean? Like there's white whole people thing. who really go to church, really yeah. go to church you know, and not to do Joseph and the amazing trick color dream coat or celebrate birthdays, you know, but to do evil. But like there are good, nice, like church white people every time I'm like, wow. But it's funny that you were like, you know, I accepted a church invitation from a random. Like, that's a big deal. I've been getting church invitations from randos my whole life. Like, I just, <laughs> this is literally how black women communicate with one another. And I just don't always know. It's, I'm so, I have to, like, I end up giving women my phone number all the time. They just want to invite me to church. And I don't, like, I don't know what's happening. I don't, what do I say? How do I make you feel that my soul is not damned to hell without having to go to church with you if I don't want to go? Couldn't we just have coffee is the question. That's kind of like me uh, uh, me asking a guy out on a date and him saying like, well, what if we just sat down and read the newspaper together? <laughs> Trying to have a baby. What's going on? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the only white people on TV who go to church that I can think of are the Simpsons. The Simpsons yeah. go to church. The Simpsons go like to the, church. The only ones. And they made it seem so like... I don't know. I mean, they didn't necessarily make the best case for it either, right? Like, never. I was going to say, a lot of the white people on TV I see going to church are going to Catholic churches, and that's just the beginning of the story. Right. Yeah, yeah. Then it takes a turn. And it's part of an NCIS episode. Shout out to the church, though. What up, <laughs> church people? We love you. Uh, all right, before we move on, <laughs> let's uh, talk some business. Sorry, God. Sorry, God. God knows I'm, we, me and God are cool. We just talk through crystals and stuff. We have a different relationship. Right, right. Uh, Slate's parenting newsletter is the best place to be notified about everything that Slate publishes about being a parent. Um, you can learn about new episodes of Mom and Dad are Fighting. You can learn about Karen Feeding and all our other stuff. You can sign up for it at slate.com slash parenting email. Also, it's just like uh, an email from me every week, except for I didn't do it the last two weeks because I was on vacation and then I had pneumonia. But usually it's just a fun email from me. So sign up. Also, check us out on Facebook. You just search for Slate Parenting on facebook.com. It is a really fun community. We moderate it so it doesn't get out of control. I... Just kicked a jerk out an hour ago. It was very satisfying. Someone asked a question about good TV shows for their kids. And this guy was like, uh, get your kids to read a book. And I was like, eat shit, pal. You're gone. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's a low for, bar. Yeah, no, he, he earned it. Uh, just search for Slate Parenting on Facebook. In Slate Plus today, we will be talking about our parenting vices that we won't be giving up. In 2020, what are the parenting vices that, fuck it, we're just going to keep on doing in 2020? Here's a quick sneak peek of what you'll hear if you have Slate Plus. I feel like perhaps just indulging is actually the way to learn moderation because that kid, I mean, you should hear him on like bite four of his second cookie. He's like, maybe, maybe mom, this is enough cookie for a kid. I don't know. Wow. And so. Uh, <laughs> the kid sounds like a fucking amateur. 
To hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, sign up for Slate Plus. That's our membership program, a great way to support everything that Slate does. For just 35 bucks for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing Mom and Dad are Fighting and your other favorite Slate shows. And, of course, in return, you'll get extended ad-free versions of this show and also the other ones, plus a ton of other great benefits. So if you'd like to support Mom and Dad are Fighting, go to Slate.com slash Mom and Dad Plus and join Slate Plus today. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, onward. It is time for our listener questions. We're doing two in this week's show. If you would like to email us your question, just send it to momanddad at slate.com. This question is being read by the one and only Shasha Leonard. Dear mom and dad, my wife and I have two kids, Miss A, who came to us through foster care when she was two and is now four and a half, and baby C, who my wife gave birth to last year with the help of a known sperm donor. Miss A is biracial black with curly hair and beautiful brown skin, while Baby C takes after his mama and donor with fair white skin, blonde hair, and blue eyes. I am also a white woman. Our issue is how to deal with compliments on Baby C's appearance. He gets a lot of compliments on his blue eyes and sweet face. I mean, I agree, he's beautiful. Miss A gets compliments too, but we're all too aware of the difference in social power conferred by their racial identities, and thus the different connotations these compliments carry. The most striking example is at the kids' daycare. The majority of kids and teachers are African American or biracial, with just a handful of white kids. This was a big part of why we chose the school for our kids. But we have observed how multiple teachers give him much more positive treatment than other kids. It's a lot of, boyfriend, come here you pretty boy. Show me those beautiful eyes. Part of this is his very chill and very smiley nature. He's the baby who will quietly play as the others cry and demand attention. But one white teacher even specifically said that when he's in her class, he'll get away with more than the other kids because of his blonde hair and blue eyes. I semi-jokingly responded that we send him to this daycare specifically so that he doesn't get this treatment. But the teacher doubled down. So, mom and dad, what say you? A conversation with daycare is certainly a step, but I would also love advice on how to deal with this moving forward, both in casual situations and in those like daycare, where the treatment seems to be ongoing. I am all too aware of the disparity in social privilege enjoyed by my two kids. How do I, as their parent, address it? Well, I guess this is the part of the show where I don't know. I know Dan watches Blackish and mixed, um, maybe mixedish, but where there's like a moment where uh, whichever character is narrating the episode usually um, the mother or the father stops and like explains something that like black people know intimately (laughs) uh, in ways that other folks can understand so I'm just gonna uh, mosey on through and talk briefly about colorism so as you letter writer and listeners all understand that with the European informed beauty standards that we have in this country that blonde hair and blue eyes are considered to be at the top of the attractiveness hierarchy and that whiteness in general is considered to be more 
attractive or aesthetically pleasing than blackness. And the further you get away from whiteness, uh, the less attractive that you are considered to be by institutions um, and by a lot of individuals. And so black people are not divorced from that at all. It isn't that we look at somebody who is of African descent and identifiably so, and, and, and they were all universally in love with their features, um, you know, despite how they may show up in our own faces or our own skin, our own hair. So we have been taught that narrower noses and lips that are full enough not to be quote unquote white people's lips, but not too big uh, to really remind folks of where we're from and hair that is loosely textured or loosely curled as opposed to very kinky or skin that is lighter in complexion than very dark. Right. That's what we're taught is pretty. And so. Your daughter is going to experience great privilege relative to other black girls, uh, particularly darker complexion black girls in certain instances because of the way that she looks. And even amongst black folks, your son um, may find himself in situations or has already found himself in a situation where he's being unreasonably doted upon because of his looks. Your kids, both of them have to understand they aren't being treated well because they're beautiful, right? That they're being treated differently because they are considered to be beautiful for certain reasons. And that's a very difficult understanding to live with. And it's one that I'm not trying to drum up any pity for being raised a light complexion, biracial looking, curly haired black girl at all. Because when it comes to colorism and how it impacts black people, I don't deal with the the worst of it, right? I deal with the least of it, but I deal with it. Where it showed up for me, in addition to the privilege and all the people who stopped me and my mom on the street and said, I was, oh, she's so cute. She's so cute. Or the times that I was treated nicely where other kids may not have been treated so well. My understanding of that from a very young age and knowing how my experiences were different from my dark complexion mother, who is equally attractive, I'd say, because we are almost identical. Um, we look very, very much alike. And the times that we were, you know, confused for a babysitter and, and her charge or, you know, her for my grandmother as opposed to my mother, even though we look so much alike and she's not, you know, that old. Right. But just people just saw a darker complexion woman and assigned that role to her. For me, it became hard to just see myself as beautiful. I didn't see myself as beautiful. I saw myself as somebody who was treated a certain way or, or given this unfair privilege and thought to be beautiful because I am light. What I've been working on doing with my own light complexion, curly hair daughter is making sure that she both recognizes that she is beautiful, but that her beauty is able to be recognized by people in the way that other forms of black beauty are not immediately recognizable, even to other black people because of the ways that we've been conditioned and brainwashed to think that the more African that you look, the darker you are, the less attractive you are, that the more you look like you have white blood in you, the better looking you are. And at times you'll be treated as if you're smarter or more capable or more competent. What the teachers, particularly the black and other teachers of color at this school are dealing with is their own internalized madness. You'll get it from both sides. There'll be teachers who have children who look like yours, who fawn over them because those kids look like their own or because those kids look like them. There'll be teachers who look nothing like your children, who would probably have to have a child with a white person to have a light complexion child who are, are still overly invested in that form of beauty or, or you know, 
praising that in ways that they wouldn't praise the the little Lupita and the little Idris that are just as beautiful and just as in need of attention and affirmation, not just for being smart or for being kind, but for being beautiful as any other child and don't always receive that from their own people. All that to say, this is a battle you all are going to be dealing with uh, for the rest of your lives now. I am concerned about all the teachers and how this bias is showing up. I think that the white teacher uh, being unaware, and I'm not saying that she should be held to a higher standard than the other teachers, but I think that her lack of cultural awareness when you pointed this out to her in that moment is disappointing, if nothing else, that she could have recovered from that. And she said, oh, he's just so adorable. He's so sweet. But for her to say, no, 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 I'm going to treat that little blonde blue boy uh, different because he's blonde and blue. And I know she's trying to say she just thinks to him as particularly adorable, but that she can't recognize why does she think of him as more adorable than the other children in the school? Well, just to echo some of what Jamila said, you know, I think it's great that you as parents are starting off from this place of real awareness of this so that you're situating your family as ready to be aware of these issues early, to start these conversations early. But I also think you have to be, you know, careful about your role and how you approach the teachers, especially individually, especially, you know, in the heat of the classroom and in that moment. And in presuming, too, that probably part of their job, their focus is parent management and making parents feel seen and valued. And I think that the place to start this conversation with the daycare is with the administration and not necessarily teacher by teacher. I think sort of throwing it back on the teacher a little bit in a joking way in the moment is a great way to maybe disarm her, to maybe give her the opportunity to correct herself or to add nuance. But when it comes to a bigger conversation, I think the place you want to start and the place you're going to get the most receptiveness is with the higher level people, the people shaping the philosophy of the school and the policies of the school and sort of bringing it to their attention. Because what you'd hate to do is come in there as a sort of lecturer, as a teacher, teaching them how they should be doing it. Because I'm sure that you're also only seeing one piece of those day-to-day reactions and interactions. And you want to make sure that whatever change they make isn't just in how they're interacting with you in those drop-off or pick-up moments, but in how they are perceiving the structure of their classroom and how they are perceiving the sort of routines of their days. I also think you're right to, and Jamila's right in her advice, in like, this is actually a moment to turn back um, to your family and to your family conversations because this is not the last time that your family will have to sort of walk through this kind of subject matter and this material and also to sort of lead by example for other families. I think you have a moment here to reconnect to your family as a family unit to think with your wife about what are the starting places for showing our children the sort of framework that's happening in society and how our um, idea of beauty is constructed and how that can be beneficial for certain parties, how it can undermine other parties to sort of give them the tools ahead of time to take those compliments and stride and not build their identities around them in a way that you see rightfully as being toxic. I also think, you know, in those moments, in those pickup drop off moments, when you're hearing that the person I'm thinking the most about is your daughter, who is four and a half and who might be listening into these conversations and who is going to be really sensitive to how you react to them. And it would just be my advice to sort of Think about in those moments when it's not really the right venue to tackle the giant thorny subject matter of colorism and that that's probably best done in a sort of 
broader school philosophy conversation to just make sure you're thinking about how you are reacting and the words you are choosing in that situation for the little person who's probably hearing more than you think and is looking for her place in your family, looking for how you see her, and to maybe take the opportunity to shift um, away from focusing on one child to focusing on the family unit to say things like, we're really lucky to have two beautiful kids. Or you say in here that your son has this really chill personality and saying like, oh, yeah, he's so easy to spend time with. His sister has made him, has, you know, like taught him how to be such a great kid or just I, I would say that I remember instances and I've and I've seen instances in my own preschool where kids are listening in ways that you don't think. And I think you definitely want to, in those moments that are easy to get lost in the shuffle, make sure that you think about and are focused on how you are presenting your whole family, not just for other teachers and parents to model that behavior, but for your daughter and son to, going forward, receive messages that they're both really loved by you. That's extremely good advice from both of you. And I have very little to add, only to augment Laura's point that in many of these situations, not only your daughter, but other people's kids are listening. And so probably you should not go with what my initial impulse was, which was to um, turn those semi-jokey responses into not jokes at all. And instead to just be like, don't say shit like that. Um, (laughs) That's probably not the way to go. Um, so listen to my fine colleagues here and, <laughs> and go forth and good luck. Uh, letter writer, there's a book that I would love for you and your wife to read. It's called The Color Complex uh, by three authors, Kathy Russell, Midge Wilson, and Ronald Hall. A revised edition came out a few years ago. It's something I've referred to many, many times over the years. And it just gives a really comprehensive and, and easy to read, easy to understand, and I think easy to discuss uh, look at the politics of skin color as it relates to black people in this country. And I think it will help you to understand much better than I can tell you what's going on at the school, um, both with the black teachers and with the white teacher, and help you to have the languages you need to have that conversation. Conversation um, with those teachers because it's something that you're going to come across again and again as long as your kids are in school. It's also something that you really have to talk to them about. And there are very few parents of light complexion black children that talk to their kids about light skin privilege. It's something that they come to recognize or understand, perhaps based on whatever sort of political beliefs they may get involved in or because somebody accuses them of it. And much like you hear white folks or white women, you know, complaining, I'm a feminist, I'm a woman, I suffer too, I can't be racist, I can't be biased against other people, or, I, you know, I'm not, I'm privileged, but I'm not that kind of privilege. You can get that same game from a lot of light-skinned Black folks who don't realize that it impacts the rates at which we finish school, are employed, how much time we spend incarcerated if we are charged with a crime and sent to prison, uh, getting married, uh, and again, just representation in media, all of those things. And it, it, it's something your daughter, your daughter deserves to know. And it's something that your son, as a sibling to a black child, deserves to know and, and should know. And also as somebody who has blonde hair and blue eyes and will be treated better than white kids who have brown hair and brown eyes, talking about what bias on the basis of not just race, but color and complexion looks like, I think would be a really healthy and important conversation for you all to have in your home uh, so you can begin to deal with this. And just briefly, I'll add, um, 
in terms of thinking about what a script might look like for you to talk to other people. Uh, it, it sounds like you were certainly on the right page with that teacher. And it's, it's disappointing that she wasn't able to receive it. But then she said we sent you know our kids here because we didn't want them to have that experience. But really doubling down on that and perhaps having that conversation with an administrator, you know, or the director of the school um, and, and just saying that. We understand that both of our children will experience a certain amount of privilege on the basis of how they look, you know, and perhaps how they're being raised and who's raising them. But that is not what we want for them. And if this is not an environment where you're capable of treating all of the children fairly and, and making every child that walks in here feel beautiful and capable and competent um, when they leave your doors, then this might not be the right place for our family. All right. That was a very comprehensive answer. And a very good one. We would love to hear a little more about what happens in this situation from you, letter writer. If you feel like following up, we would really love to maybe hear the second beat of the story and whether uh, the administration receives you in the way you hope they are, whether you see things changing, uh, and how you've started to think about talking about it, as Jamila says, not only with those adults in these kids' lives, but with those kids themselves. Thank you for writing in. Um, I hope this was helpful. Nickelodeon's got your preschoolers covered from sunrise to bedtime with four brand new podcasts. Grab their backpack and go on a culinary quest with Dora's Recipe for Adventure. Make game time great time with Let's Guess Who with Josh and Blue. And tuck in for adventure with Nickelodeon's Goodnight Bedtime Stories. Plus, we've got a brand new season of story time with Josh and Blue. Search Nickelodeon on your favorite podcast app to listen. Once again, that question came to us via mom and dad at slate.com. And that's how this next question came to us as well. Dear mom and dad are fighting. My eight-year-old daughter, A, has had several sleepovers over the past two years with her best friend. And while they've gone okay, she didn't enjoy them that much. I'm not a huge fan either since my daughter ends up tired and grumpy the next day. We had a break with no sleepovers. But recently, A and her friend have been asking again if they can do a sleepover. I turned down the first couple of requests because of scheduling conflicts, and in the meantime, A confided in me that she doesn't actually want to do the sleepovers. She just asks me in the presence of her friends so that her friend won't be disappointed or angry. I told A that I would continue to say no, even if she begs in the presence of her friend. Is this okay? To take the fall for my daughter? On the one hand, my parents sometimes played the bad guy for me, saying no so that I didn't have to, and I was really grateful. But on the other hand, shouldn't she be honest with her friend? Her friend can be very persistent, and I think A is afraid that if she says that she doesn't want to do sleepovers, the friend will keep arguing until A breaks down. I'm not sure if I'm doing a good mom deed by protecting my daughter or just enabling her to avoid conflict. Thank you for your advice. I have strong feelings about this. <laughs> Me too. Uh, I can't wait to hear if your strong feelings are the exact opposite as mine. Uh, this is not enabling. This is, I think, instead a small social kindness of the type that we do all the time for people we love. Right? Like maybe yeah. you know that your spouse is not so comfortable talking to strangers at parties. And so when you go to parties, you take the lead in those conversations and you spare her uh, a little bit of that social pressure. Or maybe you know that your mom loves some restaurant that you don't like, but you just go to the fucking restaurant anyway because it makes her happy. <laughs> of course, those are examples that I just made up. They are not about my actual <laughs> spouse or mom in any way. But so here's a real example. Um, when I was in college, there was this person who would just call my dorm on the phone all the time to just like talk, just like to blab, 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 
Yes, it was a girl. I don't know how I got like stuck in this situation, but I didn't really like her that much, but her personality was just like so overpowering and I didn't, and I couldn't like get out of these conversations. And I told my friend Jonathan at one point, like, I just never know how to extricate myself from these things. And so the next time she called, he heard me for like three minutes be like, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh. And then he just went, Dan, can you give me some help with this thing? (laughs) And then I was like, oh, gotta go. And then whenever she called in the future, he would just do that. Uh, It was totally great. She must've thought that like my roommate was incapable of tying his shoes or something, but it was such a nice thing for him to do, which is just to say that having a pushy friend is annoying. It can be really tough to navigate, even for adults. And so it's okay to just help her out. It does not have to be a learning experience. But Laura, what do you think? Um, As the pushy friend uh, (laughs) and possibly the girl who called you in your dorm room to uh, (laughs) unload her feelings, I will say that most people who are pushy and annoying uh, know that they're pushy and annoying. And it is a thing that they actively work on, even when they're children. Um, But that, to me, is even more reason that you don't need to ask your daughter to step into the fire here, especially at this age. She doesn't really have to be honest. I think a big part of the role you have in her life is that she gets to kind of stand behind you and use you as the human shield for most things. I also think this gives you the opportunity to lay some groundwork for the kind of relationship you want to have with her when she's a teenager, when she's in other situations where maybe she doesn't want to say no, where maybe she feels uncomfortable figuring out what to do or how to say no, and knowing that she can go to you and that you will roll your eyes along with her and that you will be on her team and say, like, yeah, I'll definitely... I'll help you get out of that. Or like, oh, man, it sounds like you're in a real jam. I can see that you don't want to hurt your friend's feelings. um, So let me help you find an elegant way out of this. That seems like groundwork you really want to lay, especially when it comes to such a, a harmless situation. You want your kid to feel like she can be honest about her friends with her, that you're not going to necessarily change your opinions of her friends just because they're annoying or pushy or making decisions she doesn't want to be part of and that you're going to be on her team. And I also think this is a really important opportunity to show her um, that there are often creative solutions in situations like this. I think a lot of times kids, and especially kids into their teenage years, think that questions um, like this or situations like this are either yes or no, that you have to either say yes to the sleepover or no to the sleepover. And there's just like really dire, melodramatic consequences on either side that will shape the friendship forever. And I think this could be a good opportunity to show your kid that in those kinds of scenarios, especially with friendships that you really love, Um, And as you try to negotiate them and as you move into the realm of having relationships, there is almost always an option C that is not yet on the table that you can suggest. And I think this could be a good time to sit down with her and figure out, like, you're saying you don't want to have sleepovers with your friend. I get that. I don't love it when you have a sleepover either. It makes, you know, the next day really hard for us. But what if we did something like the sleepover party where your friend comes over in her pajamas, we watch a movie until 11 o'clock, we you know stay up later than we usually do, we have those midnight treats, I leave you guys alone, and then we drive her home. And you both sleep in your own beds, but you've gotten to do all the fun activities. Or maybe even the reverse, like an early morning play date, like... I'm going to pick you both up while you're still in your pajamas and take you to a diner in your pajamas and you can order as much breakfast food as you want and, you know, to create this like alternate pathway and sort of laying for her the groundwork that like most of these 
situations you're going to find yourself in with your friends where you're uncomfortable, it's possible to find a different way out other than just saying no and sending your friend's ego crashing to the ground. I will only add I'm somewhere in, I guess, no, I'm not in the middle. I think we all agree that it's totally fine for you to continue covering um, for your child. And you shouldn't feel the pressure to make this a teachable moment. But um, I, I think it is good when we can uh, try to help our kids help their friends um, have better social skills when possible. Mm-hmm. And just really helping to begin the conversation with your daughter about what is it that makes her feel uncomfortable about her friend's approach? Or what is it about the sleepovers that she doesn't like? Like, why are we in a position where you need to have that you need for me to do this? Why don't you feel comfortable telling her the truth? And if you think that she's going to either continue to push you until you give in, why is that? You know, let's work through that dynamic or let's also work on, you know, perhaps the fear that it's not just that she's going to keep pushing, but that she may withdraw her friendship because she's not getting what she wants from it, which are these sleepover parties. Um, But yes, you're going to make up excuses for your child as long as you're around and that's totally okay. And knowing how to do that and do that with grace, that you're not making up an excuse to be mean or or hiding something for her to be mean. You're helping her to be a kind and um, sensitive friend. That's extremely good advice, both of you. Thinking about how you can start to help that friend in her relationship with her daughter and thinking about how this kind of vibe plays out, not just now, but in the teenage years when those questions get a lot harder than just, oh, this friend wants to have a sleepover and I don't want to do it, uh, are both extremely useful things to be thinking about. So listener, listen to us. I think this is good (laughs) advice. Follow it. Uh, Thank you for reaching out. If anyone has a question out there that you want us to answer on the air, give us an email at momanddad at slate.com. All right, let's move on to recommendations. Laura, what would you like to recommend for our listeners? I actually practice saying the name of this game because it's a bit of a tongue twister. I would like to recommend the game Rivers, Roads, and Rails from Ravensburger. My son got this game for Christmas. He is a bit of a reluctant game player, but unfortunately for him, he was born into my family, which is a big Midwestern family who (laughs) speaks only through the language of games and nickel value betting. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So it's always been rough for me that I have been, I I know he's only five, but really it has been a trial that I cannot find a game that he likes that will fill our time that doesn't make me wanna, you know, poke my eyes out. Um, And Rivers, Roads, and Rails is really the first game that he loves that I also love. It's a cooperative game um, where you get tiles. Some have rivers, some have roads, some have rails, and some have combinations of those things. And you sort of piece them together domino style to create pathways. Um, Not only does that speak to everything that he loves, which is exclusively vehicles, but it's also a little bit of strategy and the illustrations are so charming and beautiful. You kind of want to collect all the pieces and just keep them for yourself. So it's incredibly pleasant as a parent to spend your time looking at the cards as your son spends 20 minutes making, you know, one decision. To piggyback on that, I would like to recommend part of a website. Catherine Newman, the 
parenting blogger has a part of her website that is a master's game recommendation site. And it is basically just lists of games by age group and how they're played and what to do. And that has been such a huge resource for me, figuring out what games to play with my son and now with my daughter, who lucky for her is a more natural game player. That is a really fun cooperative game. I would sort of describe it as like putting together all the stuff on a train table, except for that you don't have those wooden pieces and you don't have to worry about whether the train is going to derail and make a huge mess Most afterwards. definitely. You're just yeah. building the tracks, which is like very Cleanup is way easier. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to take the next recommendation because I also have a game that I'm recommending, which is a great game for adults and for kids, maybe like 11 or 12 and up. It's for older kids than Laura's. Uh, but the game is called Azul. A-Z-U-L. And in this game, you are a uh, 16th century mosaic artist making a wall for the king of Portugal. And you get this beautiful linen bag full of these beautiful little ceramic tiles to make patterns on your board and then to score points. It's a very good strategy game. It's good for two or three or four people. And it's also just a very satisfying object to have around. Like Rivers, Roads, and Rails, it's very elegantly designed. It's lovely to look at. These pieces are fun to hold in your hand. And the designs you make are quite lovely. Uh, We've been playing it a lot in our house. And uh, everyone likes it. And I like it a lot, too. So I'm so pleased to hear this because Azul is the game I gave my niece and nephew for Christmas. And I was really worried that it wasn't as great as it looked like it would be. So I'm glad to have this recommendation. It's really great. It's a game where after I played it like four times, I was like, well, I guess I figured this out and uh, there'll never be anything new. And then the next two times we played it, I got just crushed (laughs) by Harper and Alia. And I was like, oh, I guess I've not. I guess there's more to figure out in this game. Jamila, what about you? What are you recommending this week? So mine is dark. I am going to recommend Surviving R. Kelly Part 2, The Reckoning. I participated in it. That's not why I'm encouraging our listeners to watch it. And I'm sure many of you all saw part one, which aired about a year ago. And it's a very difficult watch. It's over the course of three nights, uh, two hours each. You're hearing extensive details about a serial predator who has operated like this for the past 30 years operating what the United States government considers to be a criminal enterprise and very well maybe spending the rest of his life in jail because he's facing RICO charges, which is not something that usually happens unless you're Al Capone. What really struck me about this latest installation in the saga where they talk a bit more about some of the victims that were featured in the first one and some of the other victims that we didn't know about um, previously, it talks about what charges he's facing, what's happened since the first documentary came out. But what was very different about this one is that there were three white women who were featured, two who were such starch R. Kelly defenders that they helped to launch the, I guess, online R. Kelly resistance which led to campaigns of harassment against his victims and also a prosecutor whose just inability to see the humanity of his victims had so much to do with the fact that he was not locked up in 2008. And what really broke my heart about it, especially like while I was live tweeting and, and reading the live tweets and seeing who was participating in the online conversation about it, it was really just black women. And I know that there may be some fatigue around these stories. And in this Me Too moment, we're hearing about it a lot more often. It could be, hey, I sat through six hours of this before. How much do I need to know to know this is a terrible person? But I know 
that when Surviving Jeffrey Epstein airs in a few months, which is actually happening, I'm very glad that it's happening, that there's going to be a whole lot of black women who are deeply empathetic and outraged at what happened to his survivors. And in this moment, I was able to understand in ways I hadn't before the ways that white women were able to enable R. Kelly um, for so long. You know, I always thought of it as being men, men in the industry, men in our community. I thought of it being as black female fans. I didn't realize that he had a lot of white women in his corner. And, and that's part of the reason that he went on the way that he did for as long as he did. So I just, you know, we're parents. We have children to protect. There's a lot that you can learn from watching this series. And I encourage you all to do so. That series is on Lifetime. It is airing this week as we record this episode, but is available streaming or on demand for most people on their cable systems. Jamila, I can see her today, and she's wearing a T-shirt that says, it's the remix to Ignition. R. Kelly should be in prison. I am. In Chicago. In Chicago. (laughs) She's fucking going for it. That's a good recommendation. And that is our show. If you have a question you'd like to ask us on the air, please leave us a message at 424-255-7833 or email us at momanddad at slate.com. You can join us on Facebook. Just search for Slate Parenting. Mom and Dad are Fighting is produced by Rosemary Belson. For Jamila Lemieux and Laura Tisdall, I'm Dan Coyce. Thanks for listening. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.